I don't know if you've ever been in an environment where the culture, the way of doing things, is completely foreign to you. Many of you come from overseas and you've come into the British culture. I'm sure there's lots of things we do. You think, what is going on? When I was at secondary school, every maths lesson was just like that. (laughs) In those days, dyslexia wasn't really known, so both English, but especially maths, was a complete nightmare to me. The teacher, Mr. Pike, may as well have been speaking a different language, for however hard I tried, I had no idea whatsoever what he was going on about. And then... The day came when we did algebra, which was both of these worlds, English and maths, coming into one thing, and it absolutely destroyed me. I can't understand maths, I can't understand English, and now they're coming together. At least that's what it seemed like to me. It was an absolute nightmare. At times, Christianity, Jesus, and even the readings we've just had can seem a little bit like my maths lesson. An absolute nightmare to understand. What's Jesus going on about when he speaks of being blessed when you're poor, hungry, weeping, and hated? What's Jesus going on about when he says, when he warns you of being rich, warns you of being well fed, warns you of being popular? What's Jesus going on about when he gives the little story at the end of two builders, two different foundations, and therefore two different futures? What's Jesus going on about when he warns about being rich, well-fed, hungry, popular? It can be a little like my maths lesson, an absolute nightmare to try and understand. Now, if you go along to the Hope Explored in a few weeks' time that Charlie mentioned, it will really help you to get to grips with Christianity. But we're here in Luke. And Luke is saying, if you like, you've had the theory of what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Plain. Now what I'm going to do is give you the real-life, nitty-gritty example of what it actually means. The nitty-gritty of everyday experience. So in Luke chapter 7, he gives us four stories, all of which help us to learn what the blessed life looks like, what the stories of the two builders really mean, the houses, the foundations, the destinations. If if, If you feel you're at the beginning of finding out what Christianity is all about, then Luke chapter 7 is just for you today and in the next three weeks. So let's look at chapter 7, and we start off with looking at the Roman. When you read the first, this first story, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this man, a Roman centurion, is absolutely ripe for the sharp end of Jesus' tongue. Was he rich? Yes. Poor? No. Was he well-fed? Yes. Hungry? No. Popular? Yep. He's popular both to Romans Romans and Jews, which would have been incredibly rare in that day. Hated? Clearly not. 
If we were to look at the Roman centurion, the last thing in the world you would have called him was poor. He'd have had a splendid house, he'd have had servants, he'd have had rich food. To look at him, words poor and hungry seem a million miles away, don't they? If you'd, if you'd asked most people at the time of Jesus, at the time that the Roman centurion lived, they'd have longed for the foundation of his life was built upon, wouldn't they? And clearly, when he spoke, his words had authority and power. They had the authority and power of Rome. Just as you see in verse 8, look down at verse 8. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When the centurion speaks, who speaks? When the centurion speaks, Rome speaks. So to ignore him, to disobey him, is to die with death. Two words summed him up. And that was, he is powerful and he's authoritative. Hunger and poverty, a long way from this man. So how does it help us understand Jesus' sermon, this story? How does it understand, help us understand Jesus' story? The rich, powerful Roman centurion has entered a battle, we see in this story, that's as difficult as anything he's faced in vicious combat. Which is clearly what we see explained in the first part of the story. Just look down at verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Here's this rich man. And he gazes into the eyes of his servant, who he values so very highly, and knows that the illness may be fatal. At this point, just maybe, his eyes survey all his wealth. He looks into the eyes and he looks at his wealth. He looks into his eyes and he looks at his wealth. Just maybe his mind flickers to all the people under his power. It seemed like he had so much authority. But now, his words seem to have authority. They seem to be sufficient and adequate. But when he looks into the eyes of his servant, his words have no authority. They're utterly inadequate. A mere glimpse at the awesome power of Rome, that awesome machine he was part of. His words were powerful words. His authority did mean something. When he spoke, people obeyed. But not now. Not now. And when he looks into the eyes of the servant he loves, illness looks back and laughs. Laughs is supposed authority. And soon, the dreaded face of death would appear, and then it will scoff, and it will mock his authority. His words, illness and death, Laugh at. I'll never forget the day that my own mother's death 
I'll never forget that day. She had emphysema. We knew that going to the hospital this time would be the last time. The hospital was so busy that me, my two sisters, my brother and all the grandchildren had to wait two hours before a room could be prepared for her to die. And I remember coming out of the room after she had passed away. I'll never forget this. And walking past the ward where she had been for the last two weeks and just glimping over, just glimpsing over to the bed where she'd been for two weeks, where she'd once been. And now it was fresh and clean with new bedclothes, ready to go again. We wept together, we wept together. And death looked at us and laughed and mocked. The centurion's words once seemed oh so powerful. Now they're feeble and weak. So wealthy, but now he's so poor. So powerful, but now hungry for someone to help. So comfortable, but now he's weeping. Can you see what illness and possibly death of someone he treasured has done to him? It's shown him the reality of who he really is. The illness and death reveal what? The illness and death reveal his foundation. The illness and death reveal that his feet are resting upon sand and he has no answer. He thought, he thought. He was rich, but now his real poverty is there for all to see. He thought he was powerful, but now his utter powerlessness is there for all to see. He thought he had authority, but now he's speechless. I'm sure there's people here who can relate to that rich Roman. You know, so many of us in the West, we have so much, don't we? We often need for very little. And what does that do? It fools us. It cons us. Tragically deceives us. That we think we're in control of our lives. And then something like this happens that invaded the centurion's life. Something pushes through the door of our life. And our experience, and there's nothing we can do. And we suddenly realize just how poor we really are. Our smallness. We suddenly realize just how poor we really are. And just maybe at those times, maybe, maybe we're brave enough to just stop. To just stop and look around at all the wealth we have and the riches we have, our position and our power, our influence and our material clout. We're courageous enough just to stop and admit that when faced with these situations like the centurion, we're standing on sand. So what does he do? 
the response? Well, Luke tells us what he does. He does the most sensible thing. Look at verse 3. The centurion had heard of Jesus. The story doesn't actually tell us what he's heard, but I think it would be fair to think that he's heard at least some of the stories that Luke has already included in his gospel. In chapter 4, verse 40, it says, At sunset, the people brought to, to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one of them, Jesus healed them. In chapter 5, Luke gives us two more stories. This time, Jesus heals a leper and a paralyzed man. It would only take surely one of those stories for the rich Roman to respond in the way that he did, wouldn't it? I said he was speechless, which isn't quite true, for he speaks the only words that really matter. Look at verse 3. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of his elders to the Jews, to, uh, of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So he sends them off to hunt for Jesus. And when they find Jesus, what do they do? Verse 4, they plead with him earnestly. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and and he has built our synagogue. And when Jesus hears their need and sees their pain, what does Jesus do? Well, he's Jesus, isn't he? Of course, he responds. Verse 6, so Jesus went with them. And the next part of this stunning story is really the heart of the story, for it shows us how a human being is to respond when they realize their poverty, when they realize their weakness, when they come face to face with something like death. This part of the story moves us on. Moves, this part of the story shows us how to move from a foundation of sand to a foundation of the rock. Just listen, and I'm sure you will probably work that out. Look at verse 6. How do you move from the sand to the rock? So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble us, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man of authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. This one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. What's the one difference that the Roman centurion recognizes between himself and Jesus? The difference is summed up so succinctly in verse 7. Just say the word. Just say the word, Jesus. Just say the word. Jesus, that's all you've got to do. You've just got to speak. That's all you've got to do. I'm speechless. All you have to do, Jesus, is speak. Which, of course, takes us back to the parable of the two builders. How do you know a person is a true follower of Jesus? Look at 6, verse 46. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. The rich Roman has put his complete trust, all he has, 
into the words of Jesus. Jesus, all you have to do is say the word and and then my servant will be healed. You are the one, the only one, who has authority. Please, Jesus, just speak. He's moved from a life of trusting in his own words, his own opinions, his own self, to trusting in Jesus' words, the true foundation, the rock by which he is to build his life. He's moved from thinking that he was rich to realizing true wealth only comes from trusting in the words of Jesus. He's moved from thinking he was full and satisfied to realizing that when the toughest things in life rear their head, who's the only one who can feed you? Who's the only one can reach the deepest need of your soul? The day started with pain, but it ends with joy. The day started with mourning, but he goes away laughing because he's come to Jesus and he's heard the voice of Jesus and he's trusted the voice of Jesus. And lastly, the reward. We've seen how the Roman responded. What about Jesus? When Jesus hears the Gentile Roman centurion's response, he's what? He's amazed. I'd have loved to see the, vo- the face of the Son of God, the one who created the world. I'd love to have seen his face when he was amazed, wouldn't you? The Son of God amazed. But he is amazed. His own people of Israel never had faith like this man, this Gentile. He's put his trust in the divine Son of God. And the trust, of course, is rewarded. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. You see, the only foundation that the Christian faith is built upon, the only foundation, the only foundation that the Christian faith is built upon are the words of Jesus. They're God's words. Therefore, the surest way of knowing you're a follower of Jesus is whether or not you trust his words, like the Roman centurion did. Understanding Christianity is really not that hard. Even I can do it. Thankfully, you don't have to be like me in my math lesson. Christianity is about realizing your poverty before God. Now, getting there is hard. He's the creator. You're the created. We come to him empty-handed. Realizing that, acknowledging that is hard. We come to him with nothing to offer him except our sin, our failure, and our rebellion. We are the rebels. 
He is the Redeemer. The one who loves us. The one who died for us. The one who took our punishment upon the cross for my selfishness, for your selfishness, so we can be wonderfully forgiven. And when we come to him and we cry out in need, he feeds our soul. He forgives our sin. He says, I want to remake you into the likeness of my son. What you were created for. That's the word. That's the promise from Jesus. And Jesus says today, will you believe it? That's the rock. Will you move from the sand and stand upon the rock today? Will you align yourself, your core identity, with Jesus and his words? Will it be something else? Trusting only Jesus' words and not your own. For he is the rock. I'm standing on him. Are you? Where else would you want to stand? Where else would you want to stand? Let's bow our heads. Let's pray.